Hey everyone and welcome back to Heretical. So as I said in the last episode, the plan is to discuss worship in the Old Testament for today's topic. And as I was looking into this, as I was sort of pulling all the scriptures about worship that I wanted to go over, I realized this is going to be a lot more involved than I thought. Like there is so much about worship just in the book of Genesis. Like it took me maybe an hour, hour and a half to talk about worship in the book of Genesis. And so I finally decided like, hey, I am not going to be able to cram everything that the entire Bible says or the entire Old Testament says about worship into this one episode. So it's going to be a more general overview of the Old Testament. So it's not going to get deep into every single book. I'll get deep into Genesis because that's where a lot of the research comes from. But yeah, it's going to be an overview of what the Old Testament says. We could literally talk for an entire month, like every day for a whole month about what the Old Testament says about worship and not even exhaust all that's there. So this is just going to be a general overview. But um, yeah, the goal is to build a general biblical theology of worship. And the idea of this is how has God progressively revealed certain doctrines, in this case, the doctrine of worship over the course of the progressive revelation of the Bible. And when I say progressive revelation, I just mean over periods of time. So you have the law, which was what Israel had at first, those first five books of the Bible. And then over time, God added on the prophetic books and the writings. And then later we get the New Testament and we have the Pauline epistles and the gospels. And so we have this continuing uh, revelation of God's truth. That's what progressive revelation is. And so today I want to look at worship in the Old Testament. And we'll start, like I said, with those first five books of the Bible, the Torah or the Law of Moses. And so let's jump right in to Genesis. And so I think in order to lay the groundwork for worship in the Old Testament, it's important to have an understanding of God's relationship with humanity. And so starting in the first two chapters, like things are great. They have a great relationship with God, Adam and Eve, these first humans. But then we see in Genesis 3 that they sin and they are cast out of the Garden of Eden. And this, they now have this broken relationship with God. Now, as humans, if we had a perfect relationship with God, that would change dramatically how worship works. Like our worship lives would be amazing. But because we are living in a world that's broken, because we do not have this perfect relationship with God, worship is going to be different. We aren't going to be able to worship perfectly in this life. And so we have to sort of look at it from that context. And so one of the first uh, things I notice about worship in the Old Testament comes from Genesis chapter 4. So this is after Adam and Eve have sinned, and they've had two children named Cain and Abel. Genesis 4, starting in verse 3, says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And so what stands out to me is you have both of these kids are bringing offerings to the Lord, Cain and Abel. They both bring something to him. But there's a difference in the quality. And, and what we see is that Abel's offering was acceptable. God accepted that offering and uh, reacted to it, whereas it, Abel's offering, excuse me, whereas Cain's offering was not acceptable to the Lord. And why is this? You know, when we look at the text, do we get any indication of why this is? And I think it comes from that first part where it says, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, 
and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So Abel was bringing the really good parts. I would say Abel was probably bringing the best of what he had. And so when he brought the first things, he didn't give God the leftovers. He brought God what was best. He placed God first. And so God had, God accepted this form of worship. And yet Cain's was not acceptable to the Lord. And so what we see from this is that God accepts some forms of worship, but not others. And so this leads us to the conclusion that there are actually correct ways and wrong ways to worship God. So there are some forms of worship that God sees as pleasing and that in others that are unacceptable. And we'll begin to sort of see this uh, flesh out in the rest of the Old Testament. Um, but moving on from there, I want to look at Genesis chapter 8. And so this is after Cain and Abel, after multiple generations have passed, we get to Noah. And by that time, humanity had gotten so wicked that God is going to wipe out most of humanity with a flood. But he's going to spare eight special people, Noah, his wife, and their kids and their wives. And so Noah builds an ark that all the animals are brought onto it, two of each species of certain animals. Um, there were seven pairs of certain animals. A lot of people think it's just two by two. That's actually not correct, um, but I won't get into that in this episode. But anyway, they bring all these animals onto the ark. Uh, they're kept safe through a worldwide flood, and then God brings them out safely. And in Genesis 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verse 20, it says this, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal, and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so this is the first time we see the use of an altar in worship to the Lord. And it says clean animals. So there were certain animals that they could sacrifice. They could only sacrifice clean animals and not unclean animals. And it says it's a pleasing aroma which seems to indicate that while some sacrifices please God, there are other sacrifices that do not please him. And so we see that there are acceptable offerings and unacceptable offerings once again. And we see from this that God responds to it. Now, when we say that God responds or reacts to an offering, what we're not saying is that it changes God's mind or that causes him to do something. But because God has ordained things such as prayers and worship as something he responds to, we can expect that if we obey him in those ways and give him the worship he deserves and pray oftentimes that he will do something, he will do something different in response to that. Even though his plan never changed, he always had a sovereign plan all along, but he wants us to pray in order to bring about his will. So moving on, we move on to Genesis 11. And so here we see sort of the dark side of worship where people are not worshiping the Lord, but they're worshiping themselves. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and, let, and burn them thoroughly. And they had, a brick, they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. 
And so what we see here is that humans had made a tower for their own glory. Humans were worshiping themselves. And the consequences for this are very drastic because God scatters them over the whole world. And so we see the, con- the consequences of self-worship and that is punishment. And so this is where Genesis sort of takes a turn. So the first 11 chapters are this really fast history of the entire universe, or at least the entire earth. But then in Genesis chapter 12, it begins to focus on a specific family, the family of Abraham. And in chapter 12, God calls Abraham and says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So I find it really significant that God comes to a pagan here. Like he's not just choosing someone who is super religious. No, he comes to Abraham, who very likely was a moon worshiper, and you know, tells him like, hey, you are going to glorify me and I'm going to bless the whole world because of you. And we see that Abraham obeys this call, that he actually does what the Lord says and he journeys out in order to fulfill the Lord's plan. And he even builds an altar. It says that he built an altar to the Lord. And this is not the only time we see it again in Genesis chapter 14, 18. But he builds this altar and he calls on the name of the Lord. So I think it's so important to recognize that this random pagan hears the voice of the Lord and responds in obedience. And as we said in the last episode, obedience is a form of worship. Like you can sing all the songs you want, but if you are not obeying God, you are not really worshiping him. And so Abraham shows this highest form of worship and that he, as a pagan, as someone who did not know God, he is obeying what the Lord says when he calls him to uproot his entire life and go into the wilderness to he doesn't know where in order to follow the voice of the Lord and trust that he will be faithful. I think that's just so significant. And so moving on, we see another example of Abraham's great faith and worship. In Genesis chapter 22, God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And so the whole time Abraham is going up the mountain with the intention to sacrifice his only son. And this son was the child of promise. This is what he had waited for for so long. And it doesn't make sense that God would ask him to sacrifice this answer to his prayers, this promise that he had given him. But Abraham obeys nevertheless. And he goes even to the point of putting his son on the altar and he lifts out the knife. And as he's about to kill his son, God says to stop. And he says that he sees that Abraham actually honors, that he actually worships God. And so then in response to that, God provides a lamb. There's this lamb, or excuse me, a ram that's caught in the bushes in the thicket nearby. And they take that and sacrifice it instead. And this is actually a beautiful picture of the gospel, how God sacrifices his own son. There's this statement in that passage. It says, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And so Abraham shows that he fears God. And in doing so, he takes part in this foreshadowing of the gospel. And so this is another ultimate example of worship in that he wasn't even willing to, or he was willing to not withhold his son and give him completely to God. That is just amazing. So let's move on. And this is going to be the last thing from the book of Genesis that I want to mention, but I want to move on to after Abraham, after his son, Isaac, we have Isaac's son, Jacob. 
and Jacob is on this journey. He's running away from his father's house. And in Genesis 28, starting in verse 16, we get this really amazing passage. It says this, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. Now, the context of this is that he had just had a dream where he saw angels ascending and descending, and there was this ladder to heaven. And so he says in response to this, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So, he says that God is in this place and we understand that God is omnipresent. Like he's everywhere. Like there is no place that you can go where you will not be in God's presence. And yet his presence can be made known in a specific place. We know that's true with heaven. We say that God resides in heaven. Well, if he's omnipresent, wouldn't that mean he resides everywhere? Well, he is everywhere. And yet heaven is the place where his presence is specifically strong And so there are other places in which God reveals his presence more fully. We see that later on in the Old Testament in the Shekinah glory, when God manifests himself as a cloud in the temple, like we see, or he manifests his glory as a cloud. So we see all these examples where God shows up in these different places. And so even though he's omnipresent, there can be places and times where his presence is more fully made known. And so Jacob, in response to this, calls it Bethel, which means the house of God. And he promises God to worship God if God will provide for him and protect him. Now, this is interesting. Like, his worship is conditional. It's conditional on the idea that God will provide for and protect him. Now, whenever I see uh, sort of a conditional thing like, God, if you do this for me, I will do this for you. Like, I think that's kind of sus. It's like God is the God of the universe. Like, you, you don't bargain with God. You give him what he deserves. You give him the worship and praise he deserves, regardless of how he responds to you. And yet, we do have this promise that God will will provide and protect us. And so, we should worship God in light of that, knowing that he's a good God who provides for us and who protects us. We should be able to worship God, because it doesn't have to be conditional like Jacob. Jacob didn't have the revelation to know that God would always be with him. And yet we do have that revelation, Matthew 28, 20, and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. We have that promise of his presence and his protection and his provision. And so we can trust him and we can worship him because of that. And so that's an overview of worship in the book of Genesis. And so we see that people begin to call on the name of the Lord and that even pagans are beginning to get this call from God and this sort of religion of Judaism is being established. So we move on to Exodus. So Jacob's son Joseph had been betrayed. He had been sent into Egypt, but God works miraculously and brings Joseph up the ranks to become the second most powerful person in the land. And through Joseph's management of resources, people are able to come to Egypt for food when there's a famine. And that's how the whole nation of Israel ends up being in the land of Egypt. And so they multiply, they multiply, and 
The Pharaoh doesn't like it. He enslaves the people. And so for hundreds of years, the people are crying out for God to deliver them from Egyptian slavery. And so in Exodus 3.18, this is after Moses has been born and Moses has killed someone and flees into the wilderness and God is calling him to rescue his people or to lead his people out of Egypt. And so in Exodus 3.18, it says, God speaking to Moses, it says, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And so God, after revealing himself to Moses, after revealing the divine name by which Israel will worship him, the name Yahweh, God gives worship as the reason why they must be allowed to leave Egypt. And so he's telling him, like, go straight up to Pharaoh and say, we have to leave Egypt because we need to worship our God. And later on, we see in Exodus 4, 30 to 31, after Moses has met up with his brother Aaron, they speak to the Israelites. They, it says, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and they did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. And so they bow in response to the fact that God will deliver them. They worship, even though the delivery, the deliverance hasn't happened yet, they worship in anticipation of God's promised breakthrough that he's been given to them. And then we see the other side of that in Exodus chapter 15. Once God has delivered them out of Egypt, after he miraculously parts the seas and brings Israel to safety, in Exodus 15, 1, it says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And this song goes on for a while. But they worship in response to the works of God. So earlier they worshiped, anticipating God's mighty works, and here they worship in response to his works. And this this instance, this episode of them being delivered out of Egypt, of the sea being part, it's going to come up a lot in Israelite worship in the future. You're going to see it a lot in the Psalms, and even our modern worship today, lots of our modern worship songs reference God splitting the sea. And so it's really cool how worship is a response to the works of God, even the works he has done way back in the past. So the Israelites are in the desert for a while, and God begins to give them the law. And he specifically gives them ten commandments. And the first commandments are very much related to the idea of worship. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. You shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so these are all about how we are supposed to honor and reverence God. And then in Exodus 20, verse 8, he gives the fourth commandment. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so we see this institution of the Sabbath day as a way to worship God. And we see these festivals mentioned later on in Exodus, specifically chapter 23, verses 14 through 17. And so he gives them all of these rules for how they're supposed to worship him. 
And there's even more. The rest of the book of Exodus goes into the building of the sanctuary and the Ark of the Covenant and the sacrificial system, the, the system of priests. There's like so many chapters devoted to this and so much depth. And this, this theme is going to continue on into Leviticus. But what we're beginning to see is that there was, again, acceptable worship. There are correct ways to worship God. But before the coming of Jesus Christ, these ways were very involved. They were very ritualistic. And there was a lot that people needed to do in order to worship God correctly. And so moving on to the book, the book of Leviticus, we see this sort of fleshed out even more. It starts right off the bat with, this is the proper way to sacrifice animals. This is the way you have to slice up the animal and drain its blood and all that fun stuff. And so it's a whole book about proper worship of God, about sacrifices and priests and purity and all these laws. And this, this continual quote throughout the book of Leviticus, God says, be holy as I am holy. And so in order to properly worship God, in order to even approach him, there has to be this holiness, this purity and righteousness, this set-apartness. And yet, what we're going to see is time and time again, Israel was never able to live up to this standard. They always failed. They were always flawed, and they fell short of the glory of God. And so the wonderful thing that we're going to see in the New Testament is that this system is no longer required. What what the book of Leviticus and these other uh, books in the Torah are showing us is that in order to worship God, we need to be perfect. We need to be holy. And yet all of us have fallen short of that standard, and none of us are able to worship God properly. This is important. You cannot worship God properly. As a human, you are flawed, and you are unable to give God the worship he deserves. And so the solution to this that we're going to see in the New Testament is in the person of Jesus Christ, someone who worshiped and revered God perfectly. And through his righteousness, not our own works, but what he has done, we are able to give God the worship he deserves. And so moving on from the book of Leviticus, we move into Numbers and Deuteronomy. And these these two books continue what was discussed in Exodus and Leviticus. They continue to flesh out the legal system that the Israelites would have to abide by. And they just continue to compound this effect that when we're reading through the law, we see there are so many rules required to worship God. And it's going to be so awesome when the New Testament comes, when Jesus Christ comes and simplifies everything for us. And so to give an overall summary of what we see as far as the development of this theme of worship in the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, number one, God demands holiness. God demands holiness. That is what is required to worship him. The Israelites had to partake in numerous rituals to worship Yahweh properly. And this this was going to be a theme throughout Israel's whole history. But what we also see is that spontaneous worship happens as a heartfelt response to the loving kindness and the powerful works of God. And we see that with the Red Sea and in other instances. And so that's what the Torah has to say about this theme of worship. And so this, this theme continues to be developed in the next section, the prophets. And the Hebrew word is the, the Navim. And so the Navim consists of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, as well as what we usually call the major and minor prophets. And so I'm not going to go into a ton of depth on this, but I do want to mention uh, Joshua. This is after the law is given. They go into the promised land, and now it's the time for them to put into practice all the stuff that God had told them from Mount Sinai. 
So they had been given the message. They had been told, this is what you're supposed to do. And now that they're in the promised land, it's time for them to actually act on it. Judges tells us how that goes, and it does not go well. We see that the people continually disobey, and that some really sketchy stuff happens as it relates to worship. Like people make uh, an ephod, or they take the ephod of one of their priests and begin to worship that. There's a dude that hires a priest in a way that violates the law. Just so much sketchy stuff that happens in the book of Judges. And so we see this affirmation of the fact that we have all fallen short of the glory of God and cannot worship him properly. We see this also in Samuel and Kings. People continue to disobey God. They don't revere God as their king and they want their own king that they can look up to. They create idols. They create false places of worship. They create all sorts of high places and it's a continual problem. There are all these high places where there's this unauthorized worship and there's this mixture, what's known as syncretism, this mixing of true religion, true worship of Yahweh with worship of false gods. And so there's so much idolatry that we see throughout the books of the Old Testament. And so when it comes to what we would call the major and minor prophets, there is this continual call to Israel to stop their disobedience and to worship the Lord properly. In Hosea 6.6, 6, it says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so this is important because he he refers to these outward works, these sacrifices and burnt offerings. And he's like, hey, that's that's not all that worship is. Like you can be doing all these sacrifices. You can be doing all the right outward things. And yet that is not what worship is. Worship ultimately happens in the heart. It says God desires steadfast love. He desires knowledge of God. And if we know God, we're naturally going to obey God. And what Israel's problem is, is that they're disobeying God. Yes, sometimes they're doing all the sacrifices that he told them to do. Sometimes they're not, but often they are. And yet their heart is in the wrong place. They do not worship God. They worship these other idols. And so God is calling them out. He's saying like, hey, worship is not just this outward thing. There is this heart component to worship. And so that's the overall theme I want to take away from the development of worship in the prophetic books is that Israel failed constantly to worship as they were supposed to. And God calls them out for it and reveals that true worship happens in the heart. True worship involves a proper heart posture to the Lord. So now I want to move on to the last section. So the ancient Hebrews had three sections of scripture, the Torah or the law, the Navim or prophets, and the Ketuvim or the writings. And so the first book in the Ketuvim and the writings is the book of Psalms. And these are songs sung by ancient Israel. And so you could do, again, a whole series on worship in the Psalms because that's what Psalms is. Psalms is a book of worship songs. And there's such a wide range. Some of them are just praise. Some of them are celebration for what God has done. Some of them are petition. It's like, hey, God, I am in this crisis. I'm in this bad place. I need you to come through for me. Some of them are very raw. It's it's almost a complaint. There, Psalm 22 starts off with, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the psalmist often starts in this position of pleading with God and almost as though he doesn't know where God is at that moment or what God is doing. But we see that pretty much every time that he looks up in the end and trusts in God, that God will come through for him. And so Psalms has such a wide range of, of different 
worship songs. Some of them are praise, some are celebration, some are petition. We can learn a whole lot about worship from the Psalms. And then we move on to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs gives us a lot of wise counsel. So it may not be worship specific, but it's a lot about how you honor God, how you are supposed to live in this world. And so Proverbs gives gives us some ideas on worship because it tells us how we should interact, how we should respect God through the way we live our lives and steward our resources. And so now I want to move on to the book of Job. And although we won't go super deep, I think there's a really important verse in Job about worship. So if you don't know the story of Job, Job was this righteous man, like the most righteous man ever. And he loses everything. He loses his children. He loses his livestock, his, the people who work for him. He loses everything. And what we see after the, the servants tell Job what has happened and Job comes to this realization that he has lost his entire life. He has lost all his wealth. He has lost his children who have been killed. He has lost everything. And it says in Job chapter one, verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. That's powerful. His response to losing everything is to worship the Lord. Even though he he's going through the worst possible things that could happen and God allowed it. Like we see from this verse, there's this very clear theme that God has allowed all this suffering to happen him. Even despite all this, Job worships in response. And what we'll see in the end is that God entirely restores everything to Job. So moving on, there's some other books in the writings that we won't get into. There's Song of Songs, there's Ruth Lamentations, there's Esther, um, there's Chronicles, which is essentially a, a retelling of a lot of the stuff in the books of Samuel and Kings. But I want to look at a verse in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. So this is after Solomon has gone through all this stuff, after he's experimented with all sorts of uh, how to find pleasure in life, uh, all this philosophizing about how to, like Solomon did the work, like he did all the experiments. He tried to please himself as much as possible. He tried finding uh, value, finding worth through money, through riches, through sex, through all sorts of things. And after all that, Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen, he's he's looked through everything and he says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is the whole duty of man. Like It's to fear God and keep his commandments. Worship is our primary responsibility. And again, it says keep his commandments. And so we are not fearing God. We are not worshiping God if we are not keeping his commandments. And so obedience is worship. And so I want to move on. A couple more books I want to mention. We see in the book of Daniel, Uh, this exile who's living in a land of captivity and this land passes a law that no one may worship anyone except the king. In Daniel's response to this in Daniel 6.10, it says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So even though he knows it's going to cost him, even though he knows he's going to get probably get caught, Daniel still worships the Lord, even when he's told not to. And I think that's a very powerful example. And finally, I want to look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which are really one story. They go together. They go hand in hand. But in Ezra, we see them rebuilding the altar, rebuilding 
the temple. So once they get out of the land of captivity, one of the first things they do is to rebuild the places of worship. And in Nehemiah 8, verses 1 through 12, we see worship in response to hearing the word of the Lord. And I would encourage you to read Nehemiah chapter 8 because it's a really powerful passage where the law is read to Israel and they're just standing there for like six hours probably just listening to the law of the Lord being read and explained. And after they do that, they worship in response. And so our response to hearing the word of the Lord should be worship. We should revere the word of the Lord and we should worship in response to that. And so that's a very brief overview of worship in the Old Testament. And again, we could go so deep into this. It would take us a whole year if we wanted to get into every verse that talks about worship. But that is how we see worship revealed to us in the Old Testament. And so hopefully this um, this helped you to think of some verses that are connected to worship that you may not have thought of before. Hopefully it helps sort of systematize things for you. Um, But that's the Old Testament. Next episode, we're going to look at worship in the New Testament. And after that, we're going to get into some more practical aspects of worship. Not that scripture isn't practical. I shouldn't have said that. Scripture is super practical, just knowing the theology. But I mean practical in the sense of how do we apply this? How do we uh, worship God today? So hope you join us for those next episodes. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you all in the next episode. Peace.